Okay, I'm so sorry. We took so much time. I just couldn't, could not help it. I was so happy with that. Yeah, me too. Oh my gosh. Hey, you guys, we are here for another week, another episode. Ashley and I are exhausted, so we're going to rush through this intro, which I'm sure you guys are going to be thrilled about because we always take way too long in our intros. Yeah, um, but we you just don't have to skip up, this one. <laughs> yeah, we just finished up an incredible interview with our guest um, from this episode. So stick around so you can hear why we're so excited and also exhausted. Um, but yeah, this week we are doing an episode on um, looking at the Roe v. Wade decision from a trans and queer perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So the guest that we had on this week um is a trans med student. Um, So uh, you'll hear from Delia later on in the episode, but just wanted to give that to you so you know what to look forward to. But without further ado, Ashley, do you want to help us intro this episode? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to take two seconds like you were doing and just pause and acknowledge that this has been a terrible week for most of America and that we're all struggling in our own ways to deal with the... um, very upsetting and traumatic news that uh, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So obviously from our perspectives as white um, cis uh, het women um, in living in California, which is now more of a privileged state, I guess you could say, um, we have our own views, but we, we certainly are feeling it and we're certainly feeling shocked and our hearts are with everyone who has been imminently affected, of course, Um, So we decided that this episode needed to be on the topic and it needed to be more inclusive than just our perspective. So we're super grateful to have been able to find um, Delia for this episode. And we do have much, uh, you know, more thorough introduction of them in in the meat of this. But we just want to take two seconds to pause and acknowledge. So, yeah. So take a deep breath, you guys. We're going to get you through... um, at least this week with some hope and some information that you can take away. And, and if you're feeling hopeless, uh, I think maybe you won't feel so much after the episode. Um, if you feel like you don't know what to do, hopefully we help you out with that. If you feel like um, there's so many angles to look at this from, we help you really focus uh, down in on, on the root of the situation. Um, so yeah, it, lots of really good information. Um, and Delia was an absolute delight. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So stories and fun updates. I think we both wrote none. None. <laughs> there, there are I'm no like, stories sure or fun updates. I'm sure updates. I could make something up, but like, yeah, I'm like, no, not worth it. No, nothing, this, this, nothing this week was happened not this week great. Other than, no. <laughs> the, than this, than Roe v. Wade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all were sharing the same story slash update with each other. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, but tell my us sunshine what's your sun- medicine. Yeah. Great. My perfect. sunshine medicine. <laughs> okay. So it's pretty basic, but I bought myself a pair of rollerblades and I've been just buzzing around getting off the negative energy. They're Impala rollerblades and they're bright pink and they're super cute. So um, I don't know if I just like subconsciously channeled the upcoming Barbie movie that's being recorded oh my God, at yes. Venice Beach or not, but I'm like, oh yeah, but they, they were on sale and they're really cute. So I've been buzzing around. Apparently Marley likes to pull me on them. So we look like a real oh, hilarious perfect. little pair. <laughs> yeah. So that's been good. Yeah. What's your sunshine oh medicine? Gosh. 
Wait, I wanted to ask, are you are you a roller skater or rollerblader? Oh, uh, inline skates? I'm probably saying the wrong thing. Just the four wheels in a row, not in yeah. not two Yeah, is that pairs. what you like? Yeah, I've never Oof. really done the, uh, what are they called? Is that what you like? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a skater. I'm not a blader, I'm a skater. So wait, I'm confused. Inline the blade skates? is like, yeah, in, blade would be inline, like a blade. So you, you, do, you blade? No, no, you're no. the opposite. Yeah. I, oh, is that yeah. easier? Depends. I think it depends on whatever you started out with. Because I can ice skate, but I also just do not like roller blades. I like the roller skates better. Skates, Even though they're like yeah. the same mechanism, but <laughs> wheels. But I just feel yeah. like this. <laughs> I just feel like the skates are for like tricks, you know, and they intimidate me because I'm like. Oh, I don't know how to like spin and groove. Like all I can do is go forward. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to have to buy those too. And we're going to have to go do that because I was too intimidated. I was like, I know, I know how to inline skate. I'll just stick with that. (laughs) Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. You can do plenty of stuff with inline skating. I just never nailed it the same way that I could for like regular skates. And like I said, like I can ice skate, so there's no excuse um, I'm just like selectively bad at some things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I grew up on, like roller skating with my siblings. I loved it. It's That's my so absolute cool. favorite. I taught myself how to go backwards. Like, no, I could not go backwards very fast. Let me just say that. But, um, yeah, so catch me with, with a pair of my roller skates soon and I'm going to be hitting you up and we're going to go learn how to skate backwards again together. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't wait. um okay so my sunshine medicine um is the book that i mentioned last time i feel like my sunshine medicines are always just like rotating the same ones but i have updates because i've been reading it actually because the last time i talked about this book i said i was excited to get started but now i'm started and it's exciting (laughs) so the book i'm reading is unmasking autism by dr devin price so i've been following them on instagram uh, for a while, but like once I started reading their book, I was like, oh my God, like so much is like, I'm, I'm barely in it. I think I'm like 30% of the way in. Um, but I like all of the information is so juicy. It's so like, it's either explaining exactly how I feel that I couldn't put into words or, um, yeah. So anyways, one of the posts, uh, this is like side sidebar one of the posts that Devin posted like yesterday is like almost word for word some of the things that I complain about which is why I was like like obsessed with this account (laughs) um so the post was about how autistic people hate phone calls and zoom calls for work specifically like we we hate calls of all kinds like but for work specifically that's what the subject was on and they were like the post was like a screenshot of some like text messages and stuff um but like word for word, some of it was like, oh, I, I hate talking on the phone like during like, oh, OK, here, let me let me tell you the, the description of how they explained uh, allistic people versus autistic. Allistic would be like non-autistic. Um, mm-hmm. So they were like, oh, allistic people are um, when they call on the phone at work, it's because they have all of these collective thoughts that they can't put together in a sequence until they've talked it out. They have to kind of like get it all out. Versus uh, an autistic person, when when they're going into this call, they're like, here's the very specific information that I know you're going to ask because I don't want you to ask me questions. Here's the information. And that's why we don't like calls. Because like, 
<laughs> and and I've had that exact complaint to Nestor before of like why I hate being called at work. And it's because when they when I pick up the phone, it happened today. It happened today. When I pick up the phone, I it's I listen to eight minutes of them blah blah blahing their thoughts together to ask me a question. <laughs> and the whole like literally it drives me so crazy. It, it's like <laughs> um today, for example, uh I was on a double call with two people usually that never happens i'm like why am i on a split call on the phone um like back like when last time i did that was when i was in middle school like what are we doing that um, sounds like me like, girls that's what's that's what zoom is for i know i'm like what are we doing what year is it like so they double like i get like one of those double calls yeah i don't even remember what they what we used to call them but i got one of those and um they, I, I listened to them talk for eight minutes at me. They're telling me what the situation was, but like they're talking over and over, like in loops. And I'm like, okay, yep, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Do you, is this what you want? Do you want me to make this specific thing? And then they just keep talking, talk, 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 explain the situation. Do you want me to make this specific thing? I like say the thing again. I'm like, do you want me to do this specific thing? And then they're like, yeah. And then talk, 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 talk. And then at the very end, I'm like, okay, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this very specific thing and I'm going to send it to you. And that's it. That's all we need to do. Right. And they're like, yeah, perfect. Okay. So then what's the whole phone call about? Get those thoughts out and then this text them to me, been an email. write them down. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, definitely the expression. But for me, it just, like, it's, like, another level of, like, frustration. I know this is mm-hmm. supposed to be my sunshine medicine moment, but I just had to get this out there. Um, <laughs> Sunny with like a chance of rain. Yeah, it's just, like, this other level of just, like, I, I just maybe just don't have the patience to listen to people put their thoughts out there so scattered in order to be able to collect one thought and give me instructions. Like, I just don't have patience for that. Um, I would rather somebody do that on their own time. And then when they're ready to give me the very specific instructions, then I'll take those. Because otherwise, I'm trying to listen to somebody put together their thoughts. And I'm also trying to follow their thoughts at the same time, which is a lot of mental work. So anyways, Dr. Devin Price made a post about this on Instagram yesterday. And I was like, mind blown. And that's why I've been obsessed with their Instagram. And that's why I'm also loving their book because I'm feeling the exact same way in the book of just like brain explosions. This makes sense. Anyways, that's my sunshine. <laughs> what I mean, is, it feels what are nice you looking to be heard. To <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially because um, it's like I've been silencing myself this whole time, basically. Totally. Like, oh, you complain too much about these things. And it's like, well, they're real complaints. Oh, it makes sense. Anyways. It makes sense. Especially when you hear it written down like that. Um, I wrote Vegas, exclamation point, exclamation point. So I asked Mike what he wanted to do for his birthday. And last second, he was like, why don't we go to Vegas? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Is this your first um, time? So, no, no, no. Okay. I, I, I had a feeling you'd been before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we've been before. And it consisted of drinking those yard-long drinks and walking around in a daze. So I wonder oh, if yeah. we'll actually do anything else this time. <laughs> but I think we're going for maybe one night. Um, we're going to drive. So it's going to be crazy and it's going to take forever. Um, but this is what the man wants to do. So yeah, just leave happy early. birthday, It'll take two Mike. Hours. <laughs> oh, you guys will have a blast. <laughs> yeah. 
So we're pretty excited. <clears throat> I think we're going to see like a Cirque du Soleil or something like that. And you gotta. I want to, yeah, I want to just like see all the sights. Yeah. So it'll be good. I'll report on it next week. So far, it is the plan, but I have nothing to say. <laughs> yeah. What are Thanks. you, what are you looking nice. forward Sounds to on good. your, your week, your long weekend? Um, yeah, maybe a Monday off. I was, uh, somebody had just said like on a call today, like, oh, oh, have a, enjoy your long weekend. And I was like, what long weekend? We just had a long weekend. What do you mean? And I look at the calendar. I'm like, oh yeah, 4th of July. I completely forgot about that. Um, so um, <laughs> looking forward to hopefully maybe a, a Monday off. Like those are always really nice. Um, and then the other thing that I put was figuring out what the hell I want to do. Because I, I feel like I'm in this <laughs> severe state of executive function that is like, it, it's like, you could ask me like, what do you mean? Like, what do you want to do with what? Like, and then I, I would say yes. Like, like with everything. Like, yes, I, I don't know. Like, for some reason, my brain has just like completely like shortwired or something on on my patience of making decisions. I don't know. So I'm... My brain does not want to decide what to do of anything anymore. It doesn't want to decide what I want to eat anymore. It doesn't want to decide when I want to go to bed anymore. So uh, I'm looking forward to being able to decision make properly again. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's stress. I don't know if it's like exhaustion. I don't know if it's burnout. Um, so, but good to like make myself aware of that. So that's what I'm looking out for. <laughs> don't know what's going on. Feeling just like a blob. Maybe it's, maybe it's, the conversation we're going to have later. Maybe that's why I'm feeling that way. But yeah, I'm just looking forward to hopefully figuring out what I want to do in existence. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a huge topic and it's super timely. I know I think about this all of the time. Um, and it only got a little better once I went to my master's program because I feel like it gave me some kind of like, I, I put identity in quotes because my work is not my mm. identity. Um but it got a little softer and I think about it less and less, but I'm probably just so busy. I don't have time anymore. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking, I was thinking we could maybe do an episode. I know you did an episode very similar to this, but maybe an episode on, um, I think it's called Designing Your Life. There's a particular book that got a lot of clout like 10, 15 years ago. It's, it's yeah. interesting. There's a whole course designed about it at Stanford and, uh, Maybe we can talk oh, a bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, there's definitely the angle of like what I want to do with life and existence, but just like the general like being alive, like where do I want to live? What apartment do I want to live in? Like all of those like mini mm. decisions are like hitting me in a way that I'm like, why does it matter? But my brain is like, like intent on figuring out these decisions. Like, like even the small ones, like yeah. what desk am I going to buy? Like, that's what I mean of like, what am I going to do? Or like, what do I want to do? It's like, I, the answer is yes, because I don't even know what the specific question is because everything I'm having that feeling for, which is really weird, Just, but yeah. Yeah. Decision paralysis, like totally everything, <laughs> everything is the question now. Yeah. yeah. And I think it feeds one thing feeds on the next. I really hope you can sort of sl slide out of it some some of it because it's so hard when you're like I don't know what to eat I don't know what I should sleep like those are just the body should just reset and like yeah 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 feeling oh. feeling unregulated in those in those ways on on the brain side so um I don't think it's anything I'm doing in particular like I said I don't really know what the cause is it could just be completely external like environmental like what's going on mm. in the world I don't know so but I'm I'm looking out for that um 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Ashley, tell us what's hot this week then. Oh, yes. I think the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned is not hot, but I think abortion... Yeah, I think the the uh, abortion and body autonomy um, protests and support for uh, the small grassroots organizations is probably the hottest thing this week and should remain yeah. hot for some time because it's so important. Uh, but we get into it. I think on a lighter note, bento box lunches are also hot. Ooh, do tell. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I was like looking for things that I thought were trending. I have a variety of sources. And one of them was like, are you taking smaller portions in bento box lunch boxes? And I was like, yes, in fact, I am. And I don't know how the internet knew I was doing this, but apparently it's trending right now. But um, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. So it, perhaps others would find this useful. It's just, I, I'm the kind of person that likes to snack on little things and unfortunately mm-hmm. that you know desire to snack has been part of the bane of my existence and been a lot of my like weight trouble over the years um but bento box lunches give me the option of variety and choice so i can just pack like little meals in each little compartment and take them and think i have this variety of snacks a grown-up lunchable. Um, well, it's not actually overeating. Yeah, it's a grown-up lunchable. Yeah, that I had to make myself. It's my and favorite. honestly, these have been around for two million years, but apparently, it's trending, and it certainly is trendy in this kitchen at my house. So I thought I would share. Amazing. That. Oh yeah, you are right on track for good food trends, um, usually. But yeah, um, I stand with that. I. I don't think there's anything wrong with bento boxes. I don't know if you were like hating on them for a moment or not hating them because you're like talking about how hot they are, but maybe you were saying like, oh, maybe they're too trendy. I don't know, but they will stay forever a trend um, because they're the best. I eat, I don't call them bento boxes, but I will call them adult lunchables. Uh, I'll eat those all the time on the regular. They're the best. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I was hating on them or not, but I was just like, oh, sometimes I pack them and I'm like, oh, we have this, we have this. And then I get to work and I'm like, I have only packed things I shouldn't eat. <laughs> so, oh, no. um, yeah, I think it, it could go either way. But yeah, I love them. I'm glad you like the joy them too. of life. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's hot on your list? Um, so I definitely agree that the Roe v. Wade situation is very hot. Um, I didn't have it on my list because I was like, maybe I'm going to be talking about that too much in this episode, which <laughs> hint, hint, we do. Um, <laughs> but uh, my ho- what's hot are pretty superficial. So uh, I put Olipop in grape because um, that's my current favorite obsession flavor. Everybody knows that I love Olipop in general, but the grape flavor, ugh, man, that one's really hitting home. Um, and then Hold the other level. what's hot. <laughs> yeah, that's it's like it's taken me taking me out of this world. Um, and then the other what's hot, which I don't know why I didn't talk about this last week because it would have been more timely last week. Um, brow lamination. I got brow lamination done for the first time about two weeks ago. I'm obsessed with it. I don't know why it took me so long. My brows look so good every single day when I wake up. They yeah, they good. do. Like that's you can't say that about a lot of things. So that's what's so hot. That's I on my have list. A question. I have a question about brow lamination. Um, Obviously, this works well for you because you have certain brow concerns. What are your brow concerns? Because I just have a feeling it won't work as well for me. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, definitely like the fact that I want them to look good because my hairs, I guess, like are more like horizontal to my face versus vertical. So the way that brow lamination like looks the best is because it's like pushing your hairs vertically. So it just like gives it a shape. Like mine, I feel like they're kind of shapeless unless I'm shaping them. And even when I put brow gel on, they'll deshape themselves. So the lamination like keeps it in the shape that the tech puts it in. Um, and then uh, for my brows, they're very thin and also very light. They're like way lighter than my hair color. So like on my head. So uh, what I had them do extra was dye them. Um, uh, you don't have to do that with lamination, but because I have very light eyebrow hairs and I want my brows to look bigger, um, I had them tinted. Mm, okay. Yeah. I was wondering if it was two things. Yeah. It looks amazing. I was just thinking for people who have my brow concerns, which are too full, too much, too disorganized Never. all over my face, then, <laughs> then maybe you have great you eyebrows other before. Mm. I feel like you would love lamination because they put it in the shape that you want. Like they, they're not going to like make them just bushy just because, but they shape them. Yeah. Like however you would do your brows for every day is how they would shape them. And they just stay that way for like four weeks. That's like the goal oh, of that's it. That's pretty good. So for people that's who have good. thinner brows, it's helpful because it can make it look bushier because you're manipulating the shape of it, but it doesn't have to be. It just holds the shape. And that's the benefit is like you do not have to touch your brows for four weeks. Wake up with good brows. That's pretty nice. Yeah. yeah. I have a coupon. I'll share it with you. If you end up going, I have like a friend referral coupon. I'll I'll, I'll send it to you. She only gave me one. So it's yours. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't um, really have a lot of people in my life that would want brow laminations either. So uh, I mean... Nestor doesn't seem like a thing. He, no, he's got perfect brows already. <laughs> um, okay, so um, really quick, because I know we're really, I keep saying this, but I, I'm going to keep saying it throughout the episode. You guys are going to hear me say it. We're really taking our time on this one. Um, let's jump into the, to the episode. Before we get started, let's go over our goals, because uh, we started doing that. Um, so I'll, I'll jump on the first yeah. one. Um, so the uh, sorry. So the first goal to discuss on this episode is the effects of Roe v. Wade on communities outside white, white cisgendered, like the, the white cisgendered feminist image. So uh, we're going to be talking about the other communities that are uh, going to be suffering or that have been suffering from this uh, decision with Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And we also hope in this episode to discuss queer and trans healthcare. And what does healthcare look like from this point of view specifically? So we get into that a lot for sure. Sorry. Uh, the last major goal is um, to, uh, we would like to share ways that you can support the LGBTQIA plus community um, in, in the world of medicine, in this post-row world, um, just in general, like what can you do? What does allyship look like? We get into that. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so without further ado, let's jump into it and meet our guest today, Delia Sosa.
Okay, welcome back, guys. We are super excited today. We have a special guest with us. Um, today, we are recording our episode with Delia. They, this is Delia Sosa. They are a queer, transgender, non-binary, mixed-race Latin activist, and as of next month, correct me if I'm wrong, a medical student as well. They advocate for inclusion of transgender, gender diverse, and intersex people in medicine and medical education, and they are an activist in the transgender community around access to gender affirming and intersex inclusive healthcare. So welcome. So glad to have you. We are so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, and I'm so glad that we get to be in community with each other. Yes, the feeling is mutual. Uh, so before we get started on the meat of the episode, this is going to be a really good one. We're really excited. Hopefully you guys are excited as well. Um, so we're going to start uh, by giving you guys a quick topic introduction. Um, so as Ashley mentioned, uh, we have Delia here. Um, so we're going to hear Delia's story and how they want to actively fight against the system from the inside, essentially. Uh, we're going to talk about healthcare, what it looks like for trans and queer people, um, kind of getting into the details maybe of gender affirming surgery, uh, general care, doctors overlooking stereotypes, things of that nature. And then we're going to have a little discussion on Roe v. Wade and how the ruling has affected these communities. Um, so before we get started um, into your story, Delia, we want to ask you to help us do a quick crash course on terminology. Um, so I'm just going to read the terms that we already have. You might want to expand on that. We might have missed things. Um, and then if you want to take it from there and and help us um, help the audience uh, understand kind of where this conversation is going. Uh, so the terms that we have, uh, transgender, cisgender, and a subcategory, we have cishet or cishetero. Uh, we have intersex, non-binary, and then also expanding on that, what is binary, gender fluid, gender affirming, gender euphoria, <clears throat> excuse me, gender euphoria versus dysmorphia and top surgery. So those are the specific terms we have. And then you are more than welcome to expand. Yeah. So I'll start with cisgender because I think that kind of helps frame what transgender is. So cisgender means that a person's sex assigned at birth and or the gender that they were socialized as aligns with their actual gender identity. So the majority of people are cisgender. The way that I like to frame it is if you've never had to question your gender before, you're probably cisgender. Transgender, on the other hand, is really an umbrella term that describes any person whose gender identity does not align with either their sex assigned at birth or the gender that they were socialized as, or both. The thing with the transgender umbrella is that there are other genders that technically fall under the transgender umbrella, so non-binary being the biggest one, and then there are other gender identities that fall under non-binary. But not every person who falls under that broad definition of transgender will use that word to describe themselves. Historically, there's kind of been, um, the best way I can explain it is like a policing of gender. So there have been people both inside and outside the trans community who have said like you have to follow these certain steps in order to like qualify as trans, but that's not really the case. If you feel that you are trans, 
you know that you are not cisgender, you know that your gender identity doesn't align with the gender or sex that you were socialized as, it's okay to use that word. So that's where we're starting. <laughs> um, okay, so thank you for covering uh, the non-binary as being under the umbrella of transgender. Can you explain what binary is? Um, I know you kind of touched on that a little bit with what cisgender is, but can you explain more what, what people mean by binary? Yeah, so when we think about gender, typically the two genders that people think of are men and women. And that's how we define the binary, is people see these two separate genders that are just, like it's just one option or the other. When we're talking about non-binary, that's where people kind of fall in the middle or outside of the two categories of men and women. But it's just the categories of men and women that define the binary. And that doesn't necessarily mean cisgender women. That can also mean transgender women. It can mean transgender men. But the binary is anyone who just falls into the broad categories of men and women. All right. That helps a lot. That definitely helps clarify. Um, I think the next one on the list is intersex. I love explaining this one. So, in okay. <laughs> my, my medical nerdy side might come out a little bit here. But when we are in like high school biology or like a basic biology class, we tend to learn that there are two sexes. There's female, which corresponds to XX chromosomes, and male, which corresponds to XY chromosomes. And then there's supposed to be a certain series of steps that happens in development, and then you end up with a female for XX or a male for XY. However, there are there's a third group of people who don't necessarily go down one of those two developmental paths. And those people are, are what we are not what we refer to. Those people are who we refer to as intersex. They make up about 1.7% of the world's population, which is around the same number of people that have red hair or green eyes. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> And so intersex people have different combinations of internal reproductive anatomy, external reproductive anatomy, sex chromosomes, hormone levels, and the expression of genes. There's a whole lot of complexity to it, not all of which is understood because unfortunately the research around intersex people has been pretty lacking in science. Um, but intersex people don't necessarily follow that path of if you have XX chromosomes, you're female, and if you have XY chromosomes, you're male. Some intersex people have some gene differences where they may have XY chromosomes, and because of the way that their development happens, they end up with female reproductive anatomy. Um, there are people who have different combinations of sex chromosomes. There are people who have what are called differences in sex characteristics or DSD. Um, so the way that their body develops and the way that it grows during puberty can be a little bit different. Every intersex person's experience is a bit different depending on what being intersex means for their particular biology. Love that. Um, that is such a good explanation. And I was, you probably saw me like vigorously nodding because I'm in genetics. I'm a genetic counselor. And I was like, 
I don't mean to quiz you, but (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you're saying. And you did amazing. And yes, I love that. Actually, we, um, one of my favorite lectures in, in school was the lecture on DSD and, um, definitely have some personal connections to that. So this is one of my favorite terms too. (laughs) nerdy out right there with you. Um, okay, then I'll, I'll catch the next one too. So the next one on the list is gender fluid. Yeah, so gender fluid basically means that a person's gender identity isn't static from day to day. So they may have some days that are, well, why am I saying they? I'm gender fluid. <laughs> gender fluid people have some days that may be more feminine, some days that are more masculine. Um, we may have some days where we just don't feel like we fit into masculine or feminine. I like to call it genderless blob days. Um, it basically just means that our gender identity or our gender expression can change from day to day. The genderless blob. (laughs) Oh yeah, we love that. Um, okay. So diving into the next one would be, um, what, what is gender affirming? And then maybe you can even expand on that, which would might be helpful is what is gender euphoria versus dysmorphia? So gender affirming really has to do with how other people treat another person in relation to their gender. It doesn't necessarily just have to do with trans people or non-binary people. Um, but it is, it tends to come up more often in conversations around people of trans experience. Um, it basically just means that a person recognizes another person's gender identity and the way that they express themselves to the world, um, and acknowledging the challenges and the stigma that often comes with that being able to recognize that and support that person through whatever situation it is. When it comes to gender euphoria and gender dysphoria, they're sort of they're sort of like antonyms of one another. So gender euphoria is really this immense feeling of joy and comfort in one's gender and in one's experience. A lot of times it comes through gender expression and how one physically presents. So it could be clothing, it could be hair, it could be through having gender affirming surgeries or receiving gender affirming hormone therapy. And gender dysphoria is sort of a feeling of incongruence with the way that a person's body exists in the world between a person's gender and how they are presenting themselves to the world. It's really just kind of a mismatch, basically, between how a person feels and how they are perceived by others or how they are how they are presenting themselves to others. Yeah, great explanation. Okay, so the last one was uh, on the list, at least, was top surgery. Um, we may or may not get into this topic, but um, just covering it just in case. Yeah. So top surgery is any procedure that a person will receive for the sake of either relieving gender dysphoria or experiencing gender euphoria. For a lot of people, top surgery is actually something that is life-saving. 
for some people, including myself, it can get to a point where they don't feel like they can live with their bodies the way that they are. Um, there's a couple of different types of top surgery and it depends what a person's goals are. So there is masculinizing top surgery, which is effectively a double mastectomy. And then there is feminizing top surgery, which is breast augmentation. Those are kind of the two broad categories. And there's some subtle differences in there depending on what each person wants, but those are the two main categories of top surgery. Okay. So I think that really helps explain a lot of maybe basics, some things that we hope our listeners understand just for the purposes of, of course, getting through a conversation on the topic, but also their day-to-day lives. So hopefully that little intro has been helpful for everybody. Do you think there's anything else people need to know um, before we dive in from terminology definitions? Yeah, the only other thing I can think of is um, just gender affirming care more broadly. Because when a lot of people think about gender affirming care, we tend to think about transition related healthcare. So like receiving gender affirming surgery or gender affirming hormone therapy. But when we're talking about gender affirming healthcare, it's really important to remember that transgender and non-binary people and gender diverse people also require basic healthcare. Like the we're not just going to the doctor because we're trying to transition. We still have to go to the doctor for emergencies. We still have to go to the doctor for like specialty visits. We still have to go to the doctor for basic primary care. And it can be really difficult to access that in a safe and affirming way. I actually currently live in a state where they're trying to pass a law that would make it legal for any healthcare provider to deny an LGBTQ plus person healthcare if it goes against that provider's morals. So gender affirming care really doesn't just extend to transition related care. It has to extend into every branch of healthcare. That's that's really disturbing. I don't know if there are any other words. Yeah, I we're definitely gonna get into a little bit more on like the specifics of what's happening politically for trans people. Um so I'm glad that you definitely brought that up. Um, but before we really dive deep in, into it all, um, we would love to hear your story. So however long or short you want to make it, that's up to you. Um, so you're just going to tell us who you are and what you're doing. Sounds good to me. Um, so as you said before, I will be starting med school pretty soon, which is terrifying, but also so exciting. Um, But it really took a while to get to that point and to kind of figure out why I wanted to do this and why it was so important to me. Um, So for context, I grew up in this tiny little town in Rhode Island. Um, I had two amazing parents. My mom has since passed away. Um, But my parents were, well, my dad still is, I should say, (laughs) fantastic human beings. They, um, I grew up in a mixed race house, so it was kind of interesting because my, my parents were both very proud of the cultures they came from and were like, you deserve to be proud of who you are. And I was just this like little mixed race kid in a very white Christian neighborhood. And I was like, I'm proud of who I am. And then I'd leave the house and I was like, this is scary. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot of people who I don't look like, and I don't think they like me very much. 
Um, during that period of time, I figured out that I'm queer and I actually ended up being outed to my entire eighth grade class in a Catholic school, <laughs> which was terrifying. I still don't know who did it. doesn't matter anymore, but it was a really scary point in my life because I had finally figured out this really big thing about myself and someone took away my power to actually talk about it. So I ended up going back into the closet. I stayed in the closet till I got to college. And when I got there, not only was I able to come out, like it took a little while, you know, it, it kind of took meeting other queer people and gradually coming out to them. But I also figured out something that I had kind of recognized in myself, but didn't really have the language to describe, which is that I am transgender and non-binary. I always kind of knew that I didn't really fit in with the other girls in my class like I was supposed to. And I, I sort of felt more drawn to hanging around with like the boys in my class, but I never really felt like I fit in with either group. So it took about, oh, I'd say like five years to really come to terms with that and be able to put words to exactly how I was feeling. And over that period of time, I was also in the process of planning to apply to med school and getting ready for this big, huge transition in my career. And that was kind of when it all clicked. That was when I realized that I was having a hard time getting healthcare because I'm trans and because I'm queer. There were a ton of other people like me who were having even worse experiences than I was having. And I really saw myself fitting into that niche as someone with the lived experience of being queer and trans, someone who really loves medicine and is excited to be able to practice it and kind of being able to combine those two into practice and really focusing on making sure that whatever healthcare I provide, whatever specialty I end up in, is a safe one for queer and trans and intersex patients. So that's me in a nutshell. That's beautiful. And I love how, um, you know, you went through so much to get to that place. And instead of being resentful and hateful as anyone could be, you saw, you know, a hole that needed filling and you brought your big smile just so everyone knows. Uh, they have a huge smile and it's lovely. <laughs> and uh, you brought your smile to fill that need. And it's just so exciting. We just, we kind of wish we could have caught you after a few weeks of experience so we could see how it's going. But I'm, I have a feeling we'll be following up with you. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that, Ashley. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into the story and then just kind of like, um, yeah, get to know you on a deeper level, a little bit more intimate. Um, first of all, um, if you're comfortable with it, can you share some background of uh, when you came out as trans and how that affected you? Um, so specifically on like your happiness, your career and your relationships? Yeah, so coming out as trans was kind of a rapid thing, considering how long it took me to figure out that I was trans and figure out what language felt right. Um, that whole long process took like five years, but then from the time that I had the language to the time I came out was 
about three months. Um, it was pretty short. I, uh, I started with my fiance because, you know, we have a very close relationship and we are both queer. So I was like, okay, I feel pretty comfortable, you know, talking to them about this and figuring this out with the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. Then I ended up talking to one of my older cousins who is sort of like my older sibling in a way. I'm an only child and my older cousins have had my back my entire life. So I was like, hello, older cousin, please help. I don't know who to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I don't love the rest of my family. It was just like they're very Catholic and I did not know how to tell them that I am very queer and very trans. Um, and then I told my parents one by one. Um, and then I came out publicly, literally like a day or two after I told my parents, um, I was just like, I know that I want to do queer and trans advocacy and it feels really wrong to do this work and to know that I'm trans, but to not be out about that. Not saying that people who are doing this work and figuring things out have to come out, but for me, it felt like the right time. So I came out very publicly, very explosively, and it felt like the biggest weight off my shoulders when I did that. It was like, okay, I have been sitting with this for five years trying to figure this out. I finally got it. It feels so good. And then over the course of the next couple of months, I was like, oh God, what did I do? <laughs> I was like, I am moving to a swing state that tends to swing conservative. And I have no idea how people are going to perceive me. I was actually living in a pretty liberal area when I came out and I had a really scary incident in a coffee shop where like, I was wearing a sweatshirt that said protect trans kids. Like I wasn't even like visibly trans. I was just wearing this sweat, this sweatshirt. And this guy came into the coffee shop and like looked me up and down and he looked really angry. And I was like, okay, I, I would like to leave now. Um, I think in terms of my relationships, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, you know, the people who love me, I'm, I feel very grateful that they have loved me unconditionally. Not every queer and trans person has that. And a lot of trans people, when they come out, end up losing the relationships that they have with their family or their friends. So to know that my friends and for the most part, my family <laughs> still have my back is, is so important. I think the biggest change has really come in terms of safety. Um, as much as I am happy being my most authentic self and living my life the way that I know I need to, I don't know if whatever space I'm entering is going to be safe. I don't know if people are going to verbally or physically try to hurt me if they figure out that I'm trans or that if they figure out that I'm queer. It's sort of like eerily similar to what I remember about being socialized as a woman growing up 
and having to deal with a lot of harassment because I presented as a woman, it's like very eerily similar, similar to that. That's a really fascinating, um, like similarity that you drew. Um, I, I can totally see that. Um, I think it, at the end of the day, the issues usually come down to men who perpetuate white supremacy and always that, that that flows. So, uh, whoever gets caught in their fire, um, um, yeah. So thank you for expanding on that. Um, can you tell us a little bit on, um, like what led you to pursue a medical degree? Have you always wanted to study medicine? Has this been a passion of yours forever? It definitely has. Um, my mom was actually a nurse for the majority of my life. And I still remember being like a little kid and on days when she couldn't get childcare, she would bring me into the hospital with her and just like get me like a muffin from the cafeteria and she'd like bring me to her meetings and I'd oh, pretend to take notes cute. with a crayon like I knew what the heck I was doing. <laughs> and, um, I just kind of always had this feeling that that was the path I wanted to go down. There was something about being able to treat patients and try and understand what was going on with their body that I always found really fascinating. Um, I think my mom definitely was the one who helped cultivate that a lot. Um, she was actually the only healthcare provider in our family. And um, yeah, <laughs> she, uh, she was very proud of that, I will say. But at times she was sort of like, why am I the only person who can answer medical questions? Please become a doctor faster because I I don't have the energy for this anymore. <laughs> it's a big burden as well <laughs> as a responsibility. Oh yeah, it is. Um, she really helped foster that love for the human body and trying to figure out what is going wrong with it. And not just that, but also figuring out how to support people through it. You know, I think there's a really humanistic side to medicine that has historically been lost. And I think a lot of people, when they are going to go see a doctor, tend to have either mistrust or distrust, depending on their own experiences or the experiences that their loved ones have had, because they've had a healthcare provider or specifically a physician who didn't see what was going on with them as a person. And that was one thing that my mom and her experiences, both as a nurse and as a patient herself, really reminded me of and kind of helped me figure out why I wanted to be a doctor specifically. I really wanted to not only be able to figure out what was going wrong with people biologically and physiologically, but also to figure out how I could support them as human beings and how what their experiences and identities were tied into their health as a whole. Because I think there's there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle than what some people perceive. I think you make a really good point. Um, I'm just trying to recall the statistic, but I think it's like 15% of appointments are actually about the specific healthcare problem uh, or 15% of the appointment. And then the rest is really about like managing the problem or perhaps a person has even come and maybe the healthcare problem isn't really what's bothering them today. So if we can't acknowledge 
that other majority of the the conversation that a person's coming and they want to have, how are we really providing healthcare? Are we providing any healthcare? Um, you know, people are not cars. We are not body mechanics. We, we do so much more. I shouldn't say we, but um, doctors do so much more um, to provide that care. So I think that's a really good point. Um, and I, I think as a tie into that, I'm curious a little bit more about your process of selecting medical schools that you wanted to apply to and which ones you felt would represent your um, passions and would honor your identity and would kind of foster your goals and not crush them and not disrespect them and push you into some kind of mold that we do not need more of. <laughs> oh, I love that question. Um, so on a very surface level, when I was making my initial school list, there's actually a tool that the Association of American Medical Colleges has that it's literally just like a list of all of the medical schools in the U.S. And it tells you what resources they have or don't have for queer and trans medical students. So like if a school does have resources, they'll list it next to the school name. If they mm -hmm. don't have resources, it'll just be blank. So I, <laughs> I went through that entire list figured out what geographical location in the country I wanted to be in and kind of where my support systems were, and then looked at the list to see what schools did and did not have the support that I would need. So that was on a very surface level, but then after that, it took a little bit more digging to figure out exactly what schools would be the best fit. For me, I really wanted a school that was more community-oriented and really focused on not just the science behind medicine, but also on social determinants of health and on community-based medicine, on, if possible, social justice-based medicine. That's a little bit less common currently, but I think there's a, a group of doctors up and coming that are kind of starting to work that into curriculums. A really big thing for me that I actually had a hard time looking for and finding information on was how in-depth queer and trans healthcare was incorporated into the curriculum. Um, the school that I'll be attending is one of the few in the country that actually has transgender health integrated into the curriculum in a, a more thorough way. It's not perfect by any means. I don't think any med school has fully gotten it right, but those were kind of the key things I was looking for. Basically the queer and trans health piece, community-based, and social determinants of health all tied into one big pretty package. <laughs> That's exciting. And does your school um, have trans and or queer mentors and teachers or are these? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell us a bit more about that. I wish we had queer and trans mentees. Um, sorry, not mentees, mentors. I believe there are a couple who are queer, but I don't know of any who are trans specifically. Um, there is a group of students who are like very openly trans, which helps a lot because we're all kind mm -hmm. of at different stages of med school. So, you know, we're able to support each other through the different years. But yeah, I don't think, as far as I know, I don't think there are any faculty that are trans, which does make it kind of difficult. There's one professor who does gender affirming care and she is fantastic. 
about supporting students who are trans. But yeah, none of none who have that lived experience, unfortunately. Yeah, my question was kind of similar. I, I saw a TikTok that you posted um, where essentially like the the theme of it, or I guess like the story of it was like mentors are teaching their students bias when it comes to like LGBTQIA plus healthcare. Um, so at the end of that TikTok, we basically see like the the newer mentor acknowledging the community for the first time to the student. Um, so kind of indicating like we've made progress through the years, but we still have more work to be done, right? So so the question is, what do we need to do to educate people in the medical field now that are using outdated information? And are doctors getting better at unlearning stereotypes and outdated information? Or do they have more work to do there too? I think there's always more work to do, truly. You know, even even the doctors who are learning and are able to put in the time and energy, you know, I think that there's always going to be learning and growth that has to happen. Even people within the community, you know, I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm a trans person. Um, I will say in the world of medicine as a whole, I think students tend to be the ones who have affected a lot of change. Um, I've noticed, and this could change depending on what happens when I actually start school, but from what I have seen so far, it seems like a lot of curriculum changes and changes to um, people being able to be like openly out on campus has had to do with students being, being visibly out and speaking up about what they wanted to see in terms of their curriculum. In the world of medicine as a whole, there thankfully is a really beautiful group of physicians who are explicitly gender affirming, who are explicitly queer affirming, and who are pushing for change, not just in their own clinics, but are also pushing for change like on a political level or pushing for change on like a medical association level. We are starting to see some of those changes, but there's still a lot more that needs to happen. Like just to give you an example of this, a lot of the major medical associations have stated that like gender affirming care for trans youth is medically necessary and is in the best interest of trans youth, but there's still no standard of medical education for medical schools and residency programs to actually teach this and implement what the medical associations are saying. That's just one example. There's a lot of individual learning that has to happen too. And I think that kind of varies a lot from region to region and person to person. But yeah, on a structural level, we've definitely made progress, but there's there's a lot more that needs to happen too. So I'm curious about um, something you also said on social media. What I was wondering was you mentioned the term gender affirming specialty. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that term means in the context of a medical specialty and what you're thinking um, might be your specialty? Yeah, so historically, there have been a couple of specialties that are more gender affirming than others. Um, plastic surgery tends to be one of them because, you know, plastic surgery involves a lot of gender affirming procedures. Um, family medicine is another one. 
there are actually a lot of family medicine physicians who work in explicitly gender affirming clinics. Um, and then a couple of others are endocrinology, urology, and occasionally gynecology, but that kind of depends. Um, sometimes the culture of obstetrics and gynecology clinics can be very like cisgender women focused and is not necessarily a safe space for trans and gender diverse people, but it, it depends. Um, I am actually kind of leaning towards obstetrics and gynecology. <laughs> I think the idea of, well, not the idea, but I think it would be really cool to be able to help people bring new life into the world. Um, my mom was actually a labor and delivery nurse, so that may be a little bit of her working through me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with obstetrics specifically, I think a lot of people forget that trans men can give birth, non-binary people give birth. Um, it's not just cisgender women who are able to conceive and birth a child. And as a result of that, I think it can be difficult for trans and gender diverse people to find an obstetrician who is safe to find a place to give birth that is safe for them. And I really want to be able to change that. You know, I want to be one of the people who is able to be at the forefront and say like, hey, we need to make sure that any person who's giving birth, doesn't matter what gender they are, if they're having a baby, we need to be able to take care of them in a way that makes them feel safe and cared for. So that's kind of what I'm leaning towards, but we'll see. It could completely change once I get to clinical rotations in a few years. No, that's awesome. It's so exciting. Um, you make such a good point. And it's it's like um, an extremely vulnerable time, of course, being pregnant and then giving birth. So I think that... Um, that's a big area where you would have quite a huge impact. So I'm excited to see that. Okay. So I, I want to ask a little bit more about like your activism, because that seems to be like a huge part of your life in general. Um, so a couple of things that I, I just want to pull from, because we're, we pulled a lot from your social media pages um, just to kind of get to know you and what you're about. Um, so there was one TikTok that you were talking about how social justice belongs in medicine because without social justice, it's impossible to address the whole person. Uh, but on, on another video, you talk about politics and how politics can be a form of eugenics and healthcare. So can you kind of like draw that the line between um, what social justice is in medicine versus what politics are in, are in medicine? Because I feel like people are going to get those really sticky. Um, and then, yeah, um, the other question was, um, yeah, what roles do they play in healthcare? Yeah, so... That's a really good question, and I'm glad you brought that up. So when I think of politics in medicine specifically, that makes me think of the laws that dictate how we are allowed to practice medicine. And social justice, on the other hand, has to do with the understanding that we have of medicine and the experiences of patients that allows us to provide more personalized and more appropriate care. To each person. With the social justice piece, 
it's not so much, well, it's not necessarily about political activism. It can kind of become intertwined when politics prevents us from treating patients, kind of like the Roe thing that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, politics is more coming from government leaders telling us what we can and cannot do, well, what patients can and cannot do in terms of making their own healthcare decisions, and what healthcare providers can and cannot do in terms of supporting their patients. That's kind of where the line is drawn. It does get a little bit sticky because there are some situations where social justice pushes back against politics or works hand in hand in politics depending on what exactly the situation is. Um, I'll use the example of gender-affirming care just because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. Um, so with gender-affirming care, the political piece of this is that there are an abundance of states that are trying to ban gender-affirming care primarily for trans youth, but now we're also starting to see it for trans adults as well. So that's what politics role is in this particular healthcare space. Where social justice is coming in is that we have doctors and patients and healthcare providers in all different roles pushing back and saying, this is not acceptable because it is preventing us from providing the care that our patients need and the care that our patients deserve. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does that does make sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Because um, I do see a lot of that kind of debate on social media in general. Is there like, why are you getting political and you're posting about these things? And, and usually the response from somebody who knows what they're talking about is like, it's not political. Um, so that's usually what they mean is uh, that specific distinction. So thank you for giving that. Um, okay, so I, I do want to talk about because I know we're kind of like really getting in into the time. So I, I probably want to transition over to the Roe stuff. Um, so let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about Roe v. Wade and what, what's happening there. Okay, so we have like some questions that we want to ask you on uh, on the situation, um, specific to kind of like your point of view um, as uh, somebody who's going into medicine and as a trans person, um, and then just somebody who who's uh, teaching queer youth because I know that that's a big part of your activism as well. Um, okay, so Roe v. Wade might yeah, be so about abortions, um, but really we know that it's deeper than that. It's about bodily autonomy. So can you explain what that is, why it's it so important, not just for cis people, but for people in the queer and marginalized community? To choose what happens to their body. It refers to the ability of a person to make their own decisions about their body and anything relating to it anything that happens to it. Um, 
this really goes into it goes into healthcare, it goes into research, it goes into a whole bunch of different realms. It's it definitely does not just have to do with abortions. When it comes to queer communities and marginalized communities, historically, if you look at the ways that queer people, trans people, black and brown people, indigenous people, intersex people, disabled people, the way that we have been treated by medicine and by research, there is a lot of history of people in these communities not being given a choice about what happens to their bodies. We have seen it in the case of Henrietta Lacks. We have seen it in, oh, there's a long history of the mistreatment of black and brown people in research specifically. As it relates to the queer and trans communities, currently, like I said before, we're seeing a lot of states trying to pass laws that would ban gender-affirming care. And the way that this ties into bodily autonomy is that these laws would prevent patients from deciding what is best for them and for their bodies. And it would prevent providers from actually allowing patients to make that decision for themselves because politics has already made that decision for them. So instead of it being a conversation between a patient and a provider, politics has just kind of thrown down its hand. Um, so with regards to the whole bodily autonomy thing, it just, anytime a person is not given a choice about what happens to their body or that choice is taken away from them, that's where bodily autonomy comes into the conversation. So we, we were thinking that for trans youth, Roe v. Wade being overturned was really not a surprise. Are we right in thinking that? And can you tell us why it was not a surprise, if that's right? Yeah, so I can't speak for all trans youth because I think we all kind of have different experiences. But after the leak came out, um, I've lost track of time. I think that was back in May. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but after the leak came out I think it was no surprise that it was actually overturned Um, what I think is an important thing to, to mention here is that when it was overturned a lot of the language around the the queer and trans communities was that they were going to come for us next and that you know the overturn of Roe v. Wade primarily impacts cis women, which it does. There are far more cis women that are directly impacted than trans people and non-binary people, though trans people and non-binary people are affected as well, at least those with uteruses. But here's the thing is that we're not next because we've already been targeted. We have been targeted since long before the SCOTUS leak came out. There have been anti-trans bills coming out for years. We've just seen a lot more of them this year for 
whatever reason. <laughs> I can't get into these politicians' heads, so I don't know. But we're not next. I think the fall of Roe has set a precedent that will make it easier for these bills to pass into law and will then take away health care for a lot of people. But we're not going to be targeted next because we have already been targeted. We are already on the radar and we are already at risk. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. And I think um, I'm glad that you kind of also made that distinction there as well. Um, earlier, you mentioned um, when we were talking about marginalized communities, you brought up um, black and brown people. So I would like to to touch on that a little bit as well, because something that we've seen as well from those communities, from BIPOC communities, is that um, they were not surprised because they've been going through situations like these for hundreds of years uh, at the account of white people. So um, what are the warning signs, basically? What what were the warning signs before Roe was overturned um, for uh, for either marginalized community? Um, obviously, you can't speak for a community that you're not a part of, but um, what are some of the warning signs that white people just kind of missed, even though it was right in front of their faces? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I can't speak for the experiences of Black people. I can't speak for the experiences of Indigenous people. Um, from my perspective, the warning signs that I think were probably pretty apparent were the Supreme Court judges that were sworn in under number 45 were predominantly white, predominantly conservative, and they came in pretty quickly. The speed with which they came in and the similarities of their political views combined with their judicial history was definitely a big warning sign. Um, especially with Justice Kavanaugh, I think with the whole hearing with um, Christine Ford, you know, that was a huge warning sign in and of itself. And we saw so many women and queer folks standing up with one another and with Dr. Ford. And he still got into the Supreme Court. So that was kind of a big warning sign. Um, you know, I think with the Supreme Court, it's a little bit tricky to see the warning signs um, because a lot of what they do happens behind closed doors and then it all comes into, into view once a year. Um, for me, one other warning sign I think was some of the other decisions that were coming out before the Roe decision or around the time of the Roe decision. Um, there were a couple of decisions that came out around religious freedom, but it would only had to do with religious freedom for Christian folks. Um, you know, I think it's, it's hard not to see how the Roe decision was biased when so many of the other decisions were biased too. Yeah, I can't agree more. Um, on on that note, um, I, a statistic I think 
came out recently that said that uh, 61% of the country believes in access to abortion, legal access and safe access to abortion. Um, so in your opinion, uh, or your perspective, why do you think these laws are being passed when the majority of the country uh, do not believe in, in these? Yeah, yeah who, who don't believe in what's going on? That's a tricky one. So with the Supreme Court, the way that it works is they are looking at cases one by one. The Supreme Court justices will vote on whatever case they're looking at. Um, so even if the public has an opinion on it, it has less to do with what the public wants and more to do with what the Supreme Court justices see as the right call on each case. So it's a little bit less like Congress where you have people representing their constituents from a certain state and more that you have these nine people representing the justice of like the justice of the entire American population. The issue is that the Justice Department has become very partisan in the last however many years. So we have seen justices being appointed who align more closely with an individual president's political views rather than what the American people necessarily see. That's kind of where the issues come in. Um, With Roe v. Wade, we did actually see a couple of the justices who voted to overturn it speak differently in their confirmation hearings. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. (laughs) But that kind of shows you that it doesn't, their perspective doesn't necessarily reflect the opinions of the entire American public. It reflects more the relationship that they have with whatever president appointed them and whether their views align with the political views of the president that put them into office. I will say that with the caveat that there are some presidents who don't select Supreme Court justices on party lines, they select them more for their merits and less for their political beliefs, but that's not the case for every president. It does seem though that even if they're selected on political beliefs, it is, or they're not selected on political beliefs, that there is still kind of a misstep on selecting people based on their moral standing, their worldview, their ability to see things through different lenses and empathize. So no matter how they're currently selected, merit or not, it's seemingly missing a very large piece of the pie when you're talking about people making such major decisions for the entire country. It really is. It's it's hard. It's hard to not see it because you know this is such a landmark decision that does affect. At, I I would say over half the U.S. population. And to know that the majority of people are not in support of this decision. And it happened anyway. I think it's kind of a reflection of 
the way that our government is structured, the way our democracy is structured, and maybe some opportunity to rebuild and reconsider the way that it is structured so that it more accurately reflects the needs of the American people. Yeah, I I think the American people, at least the ones that I know, are at a point where they're tired of it and they're tired of listening to these people who have very loud voices, but, you know, not very popular opinions um, making all those decisions. Um, So let's get into a little bit of like what we can do, because it it can feel like a a vortex of like hopelessness after a while. So uh, in situations like these, in situations where um, the underdog has to kind of like rise up, um, we're, yeah, we're kind of like in that moment of making the decision, are we going to kind of sit and let this situation continue and get worse? Are we going to do something? Uh, And a lot of people have reached that moment where they're like, this is the final straw. Like I've had it up to here and now, and now I can't do it with anymore. I'm leaving the country or I'm revolting like one or the other. Um, so kind of just like as an all encompassing question, um, like how can we, what can we do? (laughs) How can we help? Um, specifically, um, I, specifically in the queer communities for um, the effects of Roe v. Wade, uh, what can we do? Um, I know that you talked about um, how intersex communities are often left out of these conversations. So how can we help them? Um, and I guess like if we can revisit this because this is becoming a long-winded question, but like uh, what about like the states that are even stricter? What what do we do there for the people who have like the worst of the worst laws in Alabama or Mississippi? So my answer to both of your questions is actually going to be the same. So that that makes things a little bit simpler. Um, there are quite a few grassroots organizations and abortion funds that are doing some amazing work on the ground. I believe they exist in the majority of states. You have to kind of look state by state and see what you can find. There's a lot of information on social media. Um, the best piece of advice I can offer is to support those grassroots organizations and support those grassroots abortion funds. They know what they're doing. They have been doing this work for a long time, and they have been doing this work for far longer than we've known about the SCOTUS decision. This is a time where it is so easy to feel hopeless. And honestly, I had a moment the other day where I just sat in my car and couldn't think and just kind of cried for a little bit because I didn't know what to do. And there will be moments when we may want to just rise up and be the hero and be the underdog and do whatever we can to support those around us because it it feels like there's nothing else we can do. But realistically, the best help that we can give will come in the form of supporting these organizations that already have structures in place to support people who need abortions or who need reproductive-related health care because they have more resources in place to be able to do this work. So if you can support them financially, if you can support them through volunteering, if you can support them even just through spreading the word about them, that is really helpful. As far as supporting the queer communities, I have a similar answer for you because there are a lot of organizations in 
various states. Um, just to give you one example, like I live in, um, I live in a swing state and we have an organization that is specifically focused on queer and trans equity and inclusion in, in our state. If you can try and find those organizations and do similar things like donating, volunteering, signing up for email lists, writing to representatives, that is incredibly helpful. Um, with regards to the writing to representatives piece, it's the most helpful if you can do it in your own state or if you can spread the word about other states to people who live there. The representatives and senators from whatever state they're in are less likely to listen to people from outside their state than they are to listen to people in their state because the people in their state are their constituents. So the more people from within their state who get letters or who send letters, who call their representatives, the better. So those are the two big things. Call your representatives, donate to grassroots, grassroots organizations, volunteer, and spread the word as much as you can. Yeah, thanks for providing us with a little bit of hope because I, I felt the same way. I just was in my car and I was just crying and I was trying to get to work in one piece. And um, just a little sidebar for me too, it's, um, it's a very uncomfortable thing. Um, in our workplace or where I'm working, I work with uh, pediatric cases in genetics. So we have to have uncomfortable conversations all the time with families already about um, continuing or not continuing pregnancies. And my patient population is um, very uh, majority Hispanic and people are facing so many intersections and at this point in California, we still have, um, you know, the same laws. We're not affected as dramatically right now in California, but um, it's been difficult to see how this is going to pan out in my work and for colleagues across the country. And I'm expecting this to be a huge topic at our conference this year and trying to be able to support this. So um, I'm just excited to network with you and to continue talking. So yeah, you know, financial and then using your voice and signing up for helping and volunteering. Um, listening to you speak, I think this ties into the next question. I, I'm just so floored by how much of a voice you have and, um, you know, you have, a, you cast a presence of authority and you have knowledge. I'm just curious to know, when did you feel comfortable in your skin and, and when did you start showing up as this, um, you know, source of education for others? Um, and how did that look for you when you, when you finally decided to do that? Yeah. So I actually started as a mental health activist when I was in college. Um, I really started there because I, I had seen what my college's mental health climate was like and was struggling with my mental health at the time. Um, that's a whole other story and a whole other conversation, but that kind of helped me find my voice. And then when I was able to come out and be out, by that point, I had had so many conversations with other queer and trans folks and had had so many experiences myself that I felt comfortable not only speaking up, but also, you know, trying to uplift other people 
as well who had either had shared experiences or who had had experiences that I could not relate to because I I wasn't living them. Um, this is going to get a little bit personal, but uh, a lot of where this voice came from actually happened when my mom died. She, uh, she passed away earlier this year. And let me tell you, that woman was a force to be reckoned with. She was probably the most strong-headed person I have ever met in my life. And by the time she passed away, I had already started this work. I knew that it was something that I was really passionate about and something that I wanted to do. But it really took her passing away for me to find that that courage and be able to speak up. I think reading a lot of the work that she had done as a nurse and as a public speaker, um, and probably a little bit of her spirit kind of finding its way into me, was really what pushed me to to take the, the leap of faith and really dive headfirst into this work. So as much as I miss my mom and I wish that she could be here to see it, I am I am grateful that she's here with me helping me, you know, talk to people and have these hard conversations because I don't think I could have done it without her. You're going to turn us into a puddle of tears over Thank here. You. Um that's beautiful. Um yeah. I just have, like, goosebumps everywhere. Sorry to hear about your mom, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss of your mom. It's terrible. I I love that you're taking her spirit with you, though, as you said. Um, that you're not, like, something Ashley pointed out earlier in this episode is that you just have this, like, um, I don't know, like, this, like, energy of you that's very, like, excited to help people and and. I can hear through your story, like you've mentioned your mom a couple of times now, I can hear through your story how um, she specifically helped you through, like, is continuing to help you through now. Um, I think that's a very special relationship. And um, I just want to give you a huge hug, I guess. It's, it's like I don't know how to verbalize my words sometimes. I just want to give you a huge hug. Um, thank you for sharing that story and for being really open with us on that. Thank you. And quite honestly, I love hugs. So if we were in person, I I would be giving y'all a huge bear hug. <laughs> oh, ditto. Oh, ditto. Yeah, me too. Um, we wanted to expand a little bit on on more of like a broad Q&A, um, just kind of some rapid-ish fire questions. Who knows how rapid they'll actually be? Um, but um, to conclude this episode and to give you your time back, um, cause I know we've taken a lot of it today and a lot of your energy and information. So we don't take that for granted. We really thank you. And I know our audience is just eating this up and they're sobbing and hugging their phones too. Um, I know that, um, we love you. <laughs> um, so I, I want to back up a little bit onto some of the questions that I had about your story um, that we didn't get to uh, talk about. Um, specifically, you were, you, um, I don't know if you mentioned this in this episode, but you definitely have it on your Instagram a lot. But you talk about being Catholic and that you are, you have a very uh, 
loving relationship with God. You're very open, really open with your relationship with God. So as a queer person, how are you able to keep that relationship, especially in, in a country like this, that is using the Bible as a weapon against your community? Oh, I love talking about this. This is like one of my favorite topics. Um, so I left the church when I was 16. I was raised Catholic. I went through all the sacraments that I was supposed to you know, made my confirmation. And then when I turned 16, they were like, okay, so what are you going to do to serve the church? And I was like, I'm going to leave because I don't think you want this queer ass Christian in your church. Sorry. <laughs> um, it was a really hard thing to leave at first because honestly, I have been very rooted in faith from the time that I was a kid. Um, that was something that my parents gave to me. My my grandmother, she really loved that. She was like, oh, you're the only grandchild who still goes to church. I love it. I'm like, thank you. You're very cute, but I don't go to church anymore. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that. <laughs> um, so leaving church was a really hard thing for me. Um, it took a couple of years to figure out what a relationship with God outside of church could look like. And I ended up really exploring it through music. For me, that is how mm. I experience my faith and my relationship with God the most deeply. So I would do like a lot of shower singing. I found a whole bunch of music on Spotify that I kind of piecemealed together into my own playlist and that was sort of how I was able to build my relationship with God in the first place. But I was still missing that community of like Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most beautiful things about being someone who loves God is that there tends to be spaces for community around that. But for queer people, there aren't a lot of those spaces. There are some affirming churches, but you have to look pretty hard for them. So I ended up finding this incredible group of people through a conference called Q Christian. Um, it is an organization that has like support groups and small discussion groups for people who are queer and trans and also Christian or God loving. And you can join as many or as little groups as you want to. You can come to like one meeting and never come again <laughs> like it really is kind of up to you but it was the first time that I had a community of queer Christians who actually understood what that experience was like and that also really helped like bolster that relationship with God that I had been holding on to but it felt like it was still missing something I can kind of relate to that a little bit some of your story I it kind of like a little bit overlaps with mine. Um, I also grew up in the South. Um, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a Catholic church, but I grew up in a um, Methodist church. So uh, I, I was very like deep into the white South of uh, churches. Um, so I I hear you on the community thing. I think that's that's the thing that I'm always missing as somebody who, who doesn't practice Christianity or doesn't go to church. Um, that's what I had always missed because that's something that 
man, Christians, they really know community, like better than a lot of people. Like you can rely on your fellow church mates. Like, I'll tell you what, um, that's something that I really did love about church. And it's just kind of disappointing that you can have that like opinion and, and view of community. And then also at the same time, like hate people. I'm like, that's not really, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> so when somebody misgenders you, how do you educate them in the moment, but also give them ways that they can prevent uh, misgendering in the future? Um, so not just like being an ally, like, you know, let me ask your pronouns right here and now, but like, what do we do in the future? Things like that. So how do you avoid misgendering in, in a when in doubt situation? And then just like in general, how do you become a person who, who does allyship things, I guess you could say, who are going out of their way to make sure that they are not misgendering anybody or yeah, offending anybody because nobody wants to do that. Okay. So for the person who's being misgendered, it really helps to have another person in the room who can speak on your behalf. Um, Because for a lot of us, being misgendered is a form of aggression and or a form of violence. Um, Some people are brave enough to speak up. I'm not one of those people, going to be honest. Um, But if you do feel brave enough to speak up, it's perfectly okay to do that. You know, you can pull someone aside after the conversation and just say like, hey, I noticed you misgendered me, just wanted to make sure that you know what my pronouns are. You kind of have to do it in whatever way feels safest for you. For the person who has misgendered someone, the best way that you can go about that is to apologize briefly, move on, and make sure that it doesn't happen again. We're human. We all misgender people. It happens. I think it's especially easy to misgender someone when we've known someone's past pronouns and those pronouns have changed. I've done it. (laughs) Not going to lie. So the best thing you can do is to just make your apology as brief as possible And then just let the conversation continue happening. So as soon as you catch yourself, you can say like, oh, I'm sorry, your pronouns are they, them. Or you can just say like, oh, sorry, Delia uses they, them. And then you move on with the the rest of the conversation. If you want to, you can pull the person aside afterwards, but that can make a person really uncomfortable. So it kind of depends on what your relationship is like with the person that you misgendered typically err on the side of maybe don't doing that unless you know that the person would want to hear that but usually maybe don't (laughs) we didn't talk about dead names earlier but i want to bring that up because i feel like it's just as relevant um so my mom has a dead name um and people in my mom's side of the family end up using her dead name often um so uh, can you can we quickly touch on what a dead name is and kind of the repercussions of that as well? Yeah, so a dead name is the name that a person has previously been referred to by. Um, for a lot of trans people, that is their birth name, but there can be other dead names that are also chosen names. Um, referring to someone by their dead name is really a lack of acknowledgement of who that person is and how they see themselves. You know, when 
we are referring to another person with the name that they want to be called, it is a very basic form of respect. You know, if if someone asks you to call them by a certain variation of their name or by a nickname or asks you not to call them by a nickname, it's, it's generally expected in society that we do that. And it's the same thing for dead names. If someone asks us not to refer to another person by their dead name, we're expected to refer to them by whatever their chosen name is. Um, I actually saw a really helpful TikTok on this by a cis woman with a cis daughter whose wife is trans. Um, And she was actually giving the example of her cisgender daughter who in elementary school decided that she did not like her first name and she wanted to be referred to by her middle name. And that was just what felt best to her. And I think for for parents especially, it can be difficult because, you know, the names that parents give their children can hold a lot of meaning. And the way that the person in this TikTok described it was like, if the name doesn't hold meaning to the person who has that name, then we shouldn't be using it for them. We should be using a name for them that does have meaning. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, one of the highest forms of respect to name people properly and the way they want to be called, as well as their pronouns altogether. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the two combined. And also, side note, but pronouncing people's names correctly is huge. Like, if you don't know how to pronounce a person's name, ask. I really appreciate that both of you asked how to pronounce my name because so many people get it wrong. I just pronounce everything wrong. So I'm always like out of precaution. Like, <laughs> I I usually say things wrong. I'll pronounce things wrong. I'll use the wrong word in the wrong place. I just operate on the assumption that I'm making mistakes. <laughs> so um, yes, but I'm glad that you said that as well. That's a really great point, uh, the pronunciation. Well, and especially for people who come from different cultures, too. You know, I work with a lot of people who have names that we don't see common in don't see common words that we don't see commonly in everyday life or that have different spellings than we might usually see and they get so frustrated because people don't even take the time to ask how their name is pronounced they just assume and it makes it really difficult to be in space and be in community with people when they don't even take the time to get to know that very basic part of who we are yeah i think One of the things I learned um, through a lot of my training, a lot of different volunteer groups that I've worked for, is one of the most fundamental things is language. So if you can acquire the language to communicate in a particular group, you are basically achieving first step, right? And then at that point, you're showing that you're showing up for that group, you want to be a part of that group, and you have the terminology to justify being a part of that group. So I think... If you're not in a particular group, names, that that's a good place to start. So I'm with you there. And that actually reminded me of, you know, learning the language of the queer and trans communities. I think people often get overwhelmed by how many labels there are and how much terminology there is. And if you don't know something, that's okay. You know, there's so much new terminology and so many, there's a constant change in the way we talk about 
sex and gender and sexuality that there's always going to be something new to learn, but you got to take the time to actually learn, right? You got to take the time to have those conversations, do the learning on your own in order to be able to actually engage with that community. And I love the point that you brought up, Ashley, because I think that regardless of what community you're engaging with, if you can't make the effort to get to know that community before even entering it, it's really hard to actually build a meaningful connection or a meaningful relationship with them. Totally agree with that. I actually, you know, I was going to like end end on a question um, about stigmas, um, but I feel like you touched on something that I, I was also thinking about myself was just like how people are, um, they, they need to kind of like stay ahead. They, they need to know what's going on. They need to educate themselves. Um, so the example that I have is um, I have a, a queer boomer boss. Uh, he's from the baby boomer generation. Um, so I used to work for him when I uh, lived in Portland. Um, so uh, he's a gay man. But he also does not have necessarily the understanding of how things have changed in the queer community. So he's a a prime example of somebody who's in the community, but maybe doesn't understand the things that are moving around because things are moving around so fast to him um, from his things uh, since things have changed from his generation. Um, So he would get in trouble for saying things like, uh, "Okay, girls, no fighting, like just to everybody. But because he was defining a specific gender, um, people would have to be like, okay, you can't do that. Like, let's talk to you a little bit about like how you could be more inclusive. But um, I, so I, the question is like, how do old people or like, you know, even, even some of my millennial friends can be this way. My um, family members, um, how can old people quote, um, keep up with terminology and not perpetuate outdated beliefs? Like, like you said, they might not know uh, something has changed. How do they know? How do they stay educated? Who can they follow? Yeah. So I think this is actually kind of a two-way street in a lot of ways. So, you know, in terms of if people from older generations want to learn more about the ways that language have changed and the ways that, you know, the way that we conceptualize gender and sexuality have changed, there are so many loud voices in our generation and basically from like gen what generation is that i think like gen x to like the gen z whatever range of generations that is there's a whole lot of us that are queer and trans and doing a lot of the educational work and we've made it we've made a point to like create accessible resources for people to do this learning hopefully in an easy way. And a lot of us are also willing to have these conversations. So I think just opening the door for, you know, talking about this, if they have questions, if they want to learn more, is a really great place to start. Looking for those voices that are very visibly out there and looking for those resources is another good place to start. I know social media can be a little bit difficult for people from older generations, but even just looking on the internet, there are a lot of great resources out there. At the same time, though, I think there are quite a few folks in younger generations who don't necessarily understand the experiences that older queer and trans folks have been through. 
they went through so much that we never had to experience. A lot of them lived through the AIDS epidemic. Some of them lived through Stonewall, depending on how old they are. They have, they were around before gay marriage was legalized, before, you know, before we had any of the rights and privileges that we do now, even though a lot of those rights are in question and on the table and it's a really scary thing for a lot of us. You know, these, these older queer and trans folks, first of all, a lot of them paved the way for us, especially queer and trans people of color. And a lot of them have been through more than we will ever have to go through. Hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens with the political landscape, but I think we as younger generations could be doing a better job of understanding that like this is hard for them to learn and they have already been through way more than they should have ever had to go through as queer and trans people of their generations. So I think what I would say to to younger generations is that we could offer a little bit of grace and a little bit more space for conversation. You know, I understand that it is really hard to be in spaces where not everyone feels welcome all the time and it doesn't feel like an inclusive or safe space. I've absolutely been there and it's not a good feeling. And they've been there too. They also know what that feels like. And they may not understand that what they are doing is creating an unspace or a non-inclusive space for you. So give them as much grace as you can be willing to have those conversations if that's something that you feel you can do. And just remember that this really is a two-way street. That's a fantastic perspective. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that applies to a lot. Um, a, a TikTok that I saw recently was like, here's how to get any conservative to believe you in under one hour, proven theory. <laughs> he like walks through it and he's like, basically like, you just have to be nice to the person and like, listen to what they're saying. Like, you don't have to agree, but you have to listen to what they're saying and, and don't use buzzwords because they don't like buzzwords. And it was kind of funny. So um, yeah, um, I have one more question. And then Ashley, I will let you take it away. I promise I'll stop asking um, because it r- relates again to what you were just saying. Um, so I love, thank you for acknowledging the the past leaders because you're right. Um, y- this movement did not start with this new generation. This movement has been going on for decades. It's been going on for hundreds of years, if you want to take it even further back. Um, So you're still young, and you have many trans leaders to look up to, um, and many trans leaders who have paved the way. So can you tell us if there's anybody in particular that, um, that you look up to, or whose story that you really resonate with, or somebody that you're like, that's my hero? Yeah, so... I mean, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, obviously, two fantastic queer and trans queens. Um, but there are a couple of folks who I really look up to in like more of the medical and scientific space. Um, one person in particular is actually no longer with us, unfortunately. His name was Ben Barras. Um, he was a neuro uh what was he he was a neurologist and a neuroscientist he was an absolutely brilliant man 
And over the course of his training, he came out as trans. Um, I actually learned about him through my fiance who got to meet him while he was still alive. And um, he has written a book. I cannot remember off the top of my head what it's called, but I'll look for the title and I'll send it to you. Um, but he was really a trans trailblazer in the world of science. Um, I have a couple of personal role models too. One of them being Dr. Ash Alpert. They are a, um, I actually don't know what labels they use and I don't want to infer, but they are a hematologist and oncologist and they do a lot of work looking at the experiences of trans patients living with cancer. If you just do like a PubMed search and look for Ash Albert's name, like they have so many incredible papers and perspectives out there. I like reading their work just makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. Um, those are kind of my two biggest role models, but really everyone that I've had the chance to meet in the medical world who is trans or gender diverse has shaped my life in some way. And I think that's, it's really speaks to the testament of community building and being able to lean on one another for support. So as much as I have role models, I think also having friends has made a big difference. I think, um, like you said before, and I'm so happy to hear that you are a person who had a supportive family, has a supportive family, supportive parents who wanted to see you do your best. And then, you know, you sounds like you have a very amazing and supportive community. So these, you know, heroes and role models are just the cherry on top. And I love that. Um, so we have kept you for such a long time, <laughs> double in fact. Um, and I just wanted to um, kind of come to a close here. And we like when we when we let people go, we want to leave people with um, sort of that one last statement. What is, if you could tell our listeners or if you could tell anybody one really important thing that either summarizes your mission or sort of summarizes what you're going to be doing with your life. Um, super huge question, but leave us with something to, to chew on. What, what would that thing be? We are all human beings. What race we are, what gender or sex we are, the sexuality that we have, whether we are disabled or able-bodied, whether we are neurodivergent, we are all human beings and we deserve adequate healthcare. We deserve healthcare that is respectful of who we are and our experiences. We deserve healthcare that acknowledges those experiences and incorporates it into the care that we receive. And we deserve to feel safe in the healthcare that we receive. We deserve to feel safe going to see our healthcare providers, knowing that the decisions that are made in that office are our own. And we deserve to feel safe and comfortable knowing that our lives are affected by our decisions and no one else's and that we are in control beautiful beautiful perfect 
Thank you, Delia. It's been a pleasure.